This is a personal injury update CLE offered by the New York Appellate Digest. My name is Bruce Freeman. I'm the editor of the New York Appellate Digest. This portion of the personal injury update is based on the June 2023 personal injury reversal report and the page references in this um, recording are to that June 2023 personal injury reversal report. The first case is Fritz on page 5. Here the plaintiff was injured on defendant's motocross track. He alleged there was a pothole where the riders landed after a jump. In the deposition, plaintiff testified he noticed a problem with the landing area on a prior jump. The third department, reversing Supreme Court, held the fact that plaintiff acknowledged he was aware of the problem but continued to use the track triggered the assumption of the risk doctrine and there was a dissent. As the court put it, quote, considering that plaintiff testified that on both jump landings the back end of his bike kicked up, that he hit the same pothole and that he had to work to recover the bike, we are satisfied that he was aware of the potential for injury on that jump's landing. End quote. So a possible takeaway, even if the danger of an activity here riding on a motocross track is arguably enhanced by a defendant's acts or omissions, if the plaintiff is aware of the enhanced danger, here a pothole on the course in the area where the bikes landed after a jump, the assumption of the risk doctrine will preclude recovery. Next is Rosario on page 6. Here, after a default, there was an inquest at which the judge asked plaintiff's counsel for the relevant medical records. Counsel did not submit the records for more than a year and the judge denied plaintiff's application for damages. The Second Department reversed Supreme Court, finding that this was not the type of ineffective assistance for which a client should be penalized. As the court put it, quote, counsel did not deny that he failed to respond to communications from the court, but explained that the delays were due to a problem in his firm's case management system, which did not provide reminders. These circumstances present a type of law office failure for which the clients should not be penalized particularly in light of the strong public policy for deciding cases on the merits. In addition, defendants defaulted and there will not be, they will not be prejudiced. Next is Davila on page 8 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is another reversal of the Court of Claims in a Child Victims Act case. Second Department held the claim was sufficient to state a cause of action. The court explained, quote, As the claim is sufficiently detailed to allow the defendant to investigate and ascertain its liability, it satisfies the nature of the claim requirement of Court of Claims Act Section 11B. 
The claim alleges that the claimant was sexually abused repeatedly in 1992 and 1993 on numerous and regular occasions, including conduct taking place in his room three to four times a week. This court has stated recently in the context of the Child Victims Act that we recognize that in matters of sexual abuse involving minors, as recounted by survivors years after the fact, dates and times are sometimes approximate and incapable of calendrical exactitude. Thus, a claimant commencing a claim pursuant to the Child Victims Act is not required to allege the exact date on which the sexual abuse occurred. So the takeaway here, under the Court of Claims Act, in a Child Victims Act action, the claim will be deemed sufficient if it provides enough information to allow the state to investigate the allegations. Here the allegations, the abuse took place in 1992 and 1993, three to four times a week, was deemed sufficient. Next is JS, pages 9 and 10. The Third Department reversed Supreme Court in this dog bite case. The appellate court found that the defendant did not raise a question of fact about whether plaintiff was aware of the dog's vicious propensities. As the court explained it, quote, No court has found that a dog's growling at one or two other dogs is sufficient to establish vicious propensities. Growling and barking during play activities among dogs is consistent with normal canine behavior. Even if the growling could be considered some indication of vicious propensities, the child never identified the dog that bit her as being the dog that she heard growling. As to the statement that the dog dislikes males, the child testified that defendant's son told me something about the dogs not liking guys, but as a joke. This is not proof of an aggressive behavior and in any event does not relate to the child because she is a female. The mere fact that defendant kenneled the dog and kept the dog in her bedroom when she was absent from her residence does not support an inference that defendant was aware the dog might pose a danger since there was no evidence that this was done due to a concern that the dog would harm someone. Instead, the defendant's son stated that dogs were kenneled because the puppies might escape. Additionally, it is undisputed that the dog was not confined, gated, or tethered while the child was at the residence, and in fact, the child encouraged the dog to jump up on the bed next to her so she could pet it. So the takeaway here, the fact that the dog growled and barked when playing with other dogs is simply not sufficient to demonstrate vicious propensities. Next is MK, pages 10 and 11 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. The issue here was whether the state, as the correction officer's employer, can be vicariously liable for a strip search of a prisoner. The answer is yes, even if the strip search was partially motivated by a desire to humiliate the search was deemed to have been conducted within the scope of the correction officer's employment. Therefore, the state could be liable for the officer's intentional infliction of emotional distress. 
as the court explained it, quote, the law is well established that intentional torts may still fall within the scope of employment and the motivation for such conduct is not dispositive as to defendant's liability. Rather, that factor is but one of several for our consideration pertaining to whether such acts were foreseeable as a natural incident of the employment. Said differently, where the element of general foreseeability exists, even intentional tort situations have been found to fall within the scope of employment. Although the correction officer's actions may have been motivated in part by an intent to humiliate the claimant, we disagree with defendant's assertion that such intent was the sole motivation for each of the commands. The preponderance of the acts performed during the strip frisk and placement into observation did not significantly deviate from the mandates of the strip search protocol and were in fact required prior to claimant's confinement in one-on-one -on -one observation. What rendered the incident demeaning and the reason that claimant has a viable claim is the product of the sequence in which those acts occurred. Moreover, the potential for such conduct is precisely that which was foreseen in the warnings contained in the prison directives, which instructed those officers conducting a strip frisk to be mindful of the sensitive nature of the search and to conduct themselves in a manner least degrading to all involved. End quote. So the takeaway, an employer can be liable for an employee's intentional infliction of emotional distress as long as the employee was acting within the scope of employment. Here, a strip search followed the prison protocol. Even if the search was partially motivated by an intent to humiliate, the search was deemed to have been within the scope of the correction officer's employment and rendering the state potentially liable. Next is Ramones, page 14. We're in the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is a labor law construction law case. The scope of liability under Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1, extends to breaking down and removing equipment like ladders and scaffolds from the worksite. Here, a plaintiff fell off the top of a van while loading the equipment. Defendant's motion for summary judgment should not have been granted. The court explained, quote, The plaintiff's role in removing the equipment after it had been used by the plaintiff and his colleagues was an act ancillary to the alteration of the structure at the property and protected under Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1. The defendants failed to adduce any evidence demonstrating that climbing on the roof of the van was not necessary to the task of securing the equipment on the roof, nor did they demonstrate that no safety device enumerated in Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1 would have prevented the plaintiff's fall. So that, that's the end of the quote from the case. So the takeaway here, work that is ancillary to construction work. Here, loading ladders and scaffolds on a truck after the work is done is covered by Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1. Next is Castro on page 15. It's another labor law construction law case. The limits of labor law section 240 subdivision 1 and section 241 subdivision 6 are illustrated by this case. 
Tripping over a gap between the top step of a staircase and the landing is not a gravity-related incident within the meaning of Labor Law Section 240, Subdivision 1, and the Industrial Code provision requiring that hazardous openings be covered only applies to openings through which a person can completely fall, which was not the case here. However, the Industrial Code provision prohibiting tripping hazards did apply here. As the court explained it, quote, Labor Law Section 241, Subdivision 6, imposes a non-delegable duty upon owners and contractors to provide reasonable and adequate protection and safety to construction workers. The Regulation 12 NYCRR 23-1.7 provides that every hazardous opening into which a person may step or fall shall be guarded by a substantial cover fastened in place or by a safety railing. The provision pertaining to hazardous openings does not apply to openings that are too small for a worker to completely fall through. Next are two cases, Kielb and Lopresti, pages 17 and 18 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. These two medical malpractice cases illustrate that unless a defendant raises an issue of fact on proximate cause in a summary judgment motion, the plaintiff need not address proximate cause in the answering papers. As the Kielb court put it, quote, the plaintiff raised triable issues of fact by submitting the affirmation of an expert who opined, based upon his review of the decedent's medical records, among other things, that the decedent exhibited symptoms consistent with a myocardial infarction when he presented to the hospital emergency department, as well as a large scar from a prior cardiac surgery and that the defendants departed from the accepted standard of medical care by failing to perform a cardiac workup on the decedent at that time. Contrary to the defendant's contention, the opinions of the plaintiff's expert were not vague or conclusory. Moreover, the plaintiff was not required to raise a triable issue of fact as to the element of proximate cause as the defendants failed to make a prima facie showing of entitlement to judgment as a matter of law as to that element. In Lopresti, which involved the alleged failure to diagnose testicular cancer, the defendants' attempt to address proximate cause by submitting an expert affidavit with reply papers was rejected. As the Lopresti court put it, quote, as to proximate cause, the defendant's expert did no more than opine as follows, quote, nor is there evidence that anything defendant doctor did or did not do was the proximate cause of or a substantial factor in the plaintiff's subsequent injuries. This bare conclusory assertion was insufficient to make a prima facie showing that regardless of the defendant's showing of no departure, the departures they allegedly committed did not proximately cause the plaintiff's injuries. The Supreme Court erred in relying upon an expert affirmation concerning the issue of approximate cause, which was submitted by the defendants with their reply papers. The defendants could not satisfy their prima facie burden on the element of proximate cause 
through evidence submitted for the first time in reply papers. In opposition to defendant's prima facie showing on the element of departure, the plaintiff raised a tribal issue of fact on that issue. Specifically, the plaintiff offered an affirmation from an expert who opined that the standard of care required the defendants to order additional diagnostic testing and schedule follow-up appointments in order to determine the cause of plaintiff's testicular pain. Summary judgment is not appropriate in a medical malpractice action where the parties adduce conflicting medical expert opinions as such credible credibility issues can only be resolved by a jury. Further, the Lopresti court went on, since the defendants did not make a prima facie showing on the issue of proximate cause, the plaintiff's expert was not required to address that issue. That's the end of the quotation from Lopresti. So the takeaways here, conflicting expert affidavits in a MedMal case preclude summary judgment because credibility issues cannot be uh, decided at the summary judgment stage. And if defendant's expert in a MedMal summary judgment motion does not address proximate cause, the plaintiff need not address that issue at all. And in addition, a defendant's attempt to address proximate cause for the first time by submitting an expert affidavit with the reply papers was rejected here. Next is Legata, pages 18 and 19. It's another uh, medical malpractice case where issues were simply not addressed in the expert affidavits. In this MedMal case, the plaintiff's expert affidavit did not address a dispositive issue raised by the defendant's expert. Therefore, the defendant was entitled to summary judgment. As the court explained it, quote, SV, the defendant pediatric practice, established entitlement to judgment as a matter of law by submitting an affirmation of a physician board certified in orthopedic surgery. The expert opined that the care and treatment rendered by SV's employees did not deviate from accepted medical practice and that the injured plaintiff's adolescent idiopathic scoliosis condition could not have been diagnosed until he reached adolescence which did not occur for at least one year after he left the pediatric practice care, during which time the injured plaintiff tested negative for the condition. In opposition, the evidence submitted by the plaintiffs, including an affirmation of a physician, failed to raise a triable issue of fact. The plaintiff's expert failed to address the specific assertion of the pediatric pra practices expert that the injured plaintiff did not develop adolescent idiopathic scoliosis until after he left the pediatric practice's care and was otherwise speculative, conclusory, and unsupported by the record, end quote. So the takeaway in this case as well, in med-mal cases at the summary judgment stage, the expert affidavits make or break the case an expert's failure to address a dispositive issue will simply end the case in favor of the opposing party. 
Next is Baker on pages 19 and 20 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report, another MedMal case. The issue here was whether and when the plaintiff was informed a sponge had been left inside him during surgery. Defendants tried to prove when the plaintiff was informed through evidence of habit or custom. Because that evidence was deemed insufficient, defendants did not prove the lawsuit was time-barred and Supreme Court should not have dismissed it. Here's how the court explained the habit evidence. Quote, evidence of habit has since the days of the common law reports generally been admissible to prove conformity on specified occasions because one who has demonstrated a consistent response under given circumstances is more likely to repeat that response when the circumstances arise again. The applicability of this doctrine is limited to cases where the proof demonstrates a deliberate and repetitive practice by a person in complete control of the circumstances, as opposed to conduct, however frequent, yet likely to vary from time to time, depending upon the surrounding circumstances. The affidavit of defendants submitted in support of the motions explicitly concedes that the manner in which he informs patients of the results of diagnostic procedures varies. So the takeaway here, if a frequently used procedure varies, it simply doesn't fit the definition of custom or habit. And the defendant here could not use uh, the theory of custom or habit to support his claim about when he told the plaintiff that a sponge had been left inside him. Next is Bindler on pages 22 and 23 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case illustrates the importance of the most basic elements of a tort action. One, the existence of a duty owed to plaintiff by the defendant, and two, the defendant's proximately causing the injury. Here, a defendant, a nonprofit named Lennox Hill, hosted a dance for its members. Both plaintiff and a man named Dawson were members. When dancing, Dawson fell on the plaintiff, breaking her ankle and plaintiff sued Lennox Hill, alleging negligent supervision. The first question raised by these facts is, when does a party have a duty to control the conduct of third persons to prevent them from injuring others? And the answer is, only when there is a so-called special relationship, which was not the case here. As the court explained it, quote, in general, a party does not have a duty to control the conduct of third persons to prevent them from causing injury to others. A duty can only be found where there exists a special relationship between the defendant and the plaintiff, requiring the defendant to protect the plaintiff from the third party, or a special relationship between the defendant and the third party person whose actions exposed plaintiff to harm which would require the defendant to attempt to control the third person's conduct. 
Here, the plaintiff did not even plead the existence of a special relationship. The second question raised by these facts is this. When is a defendant's failure to control a third party the proximate cause of a plaintiff's injury? And the answer, only when the third party's action is foreseeable from the defendant's point of view. As the court explained it, quote, to establish proximate cause, a plaintiff must show that the defendant's negligence was a substantial cause of the events which produced the injury. In the context of the intervention of a third party between defendant's conduct and plaintiff's injury, liability turns upon whether the intervening act is a normal or foreseeable consequence of the situation created by the defendant's negligence. Here, Lennox Hill established that Dawson's fall was not foreseeable. The record supports that Lennox Hill was not on notice of any similar incidents. End quote. So the takeaways here, number one, a party will not be liable for the conduct of a third party in the absence of a special relationship, which creates a duty. And two, in order for defendant's failure to protect plaintiff from a third party's action to constitute a proximate cause of plaintiff's injury, the third party's action must be a foreseeable consequence of the defendant's alleged inaction. Next is Mosley, pages 23 and 24 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. In the written materials, you just ignore the heading on this case because some words were left out of the heading. This is an action against a municipality, so a notice of claim was filed. The issue is what happens when the Bill of Particulars includes more theories of liability than the notice of claim. Here the court struck the additional allegations in the Bill of Particulars. The lawsuit here stemmed from a shooting in an apartment complex owned by the New York City Housing Authority. The notice of claim alleged inadequate security because of inadequate lighting. As the court explained it, quote, the crux of the notice of claim is that the defendant, New York City Housing Authority, was negligent in failing to provide adequate security by failing to provide adequate lighting at the location where the decedent was shot and killed. The notice of claim did not directly or indirectly reference those allegations raised in the Bill of Particulars that concern New York City Housing Authority's failure to protect tenants from criminal activities and criminal intrusions, New York City Housing Authority's failure to remove alleged known criminals from its premises in violation of its permanent exclusion policy and in violation of Real Property Law Section 231, Subdivision 2, New York City Housing Authority's failure to install closed-circuit TV cameras, and the alleged sale of drugs on New York City Housing Authority premises. These allegations go beyond mere amplification of the inadequate lighting allegation and are instead new, distinct, and independent theories of liability that cannot be corrected pursuant to general municipal law 
Section 50-E, Subdivision 6. End quote. So the takeaway here, you can't go too far in amplifying the allegations in a notice of claim. Mistakes and omissions in the notice can be corrected pursuant to General Municipal Law 50-E, Subdivision 6, but here the court found that adding new theories of liability went beyond correcting mistakes or omissions, and those new theories in the Bill of Particulars were struck by the court. Next is Runge, pages 24 and 25 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This case reiterates the inflexible written notice requirement for municipal liability for a slip and fall caused by a sidewalk defect. A verbal notification of the defect will not meet the requirement even if it was reduced to writing by the recipient. As the court explained it, quote, Plaintiff and the cross-claim defendants never contested the city's proof that it had not received prior written notice of the defect, asserting instead that such notice was unnecessary because the city had actual notice. However, it's well settled that a verbal or telephonic communication to a municipal body, even if reduced to writing, does not satisfy a prior written notice requirement. So there can be no liability where there's a law like that on the, on the books of a municipality. Next is Edwards on pages 25 and 26. This is an ICE slip and fall case. The property owner moved for summary judgment in order to demonstrate a lack of constructive notice of the condition, the property owner must prove the area was inspected and found safe close in time to the fall. The property owner did not present any evidence on that issue. Therefore, the owner's motion for summary judgment should not have been granted. As the court explained it, quote, A property owner will be li held liable for a slip and fall accident involving snow and ice on its property only when it created the dangerous condition which caused the accident or had actual or constructive notice of it, its existence. A property owner seeking summary judgment in a slip and fall case has the initial burden of making a prima facie showing that it neither created the hazardous condition nor had actual or constructive notice of its existence for a sufficient length of time to discover and remedy it. To meet its initial burden on the issue of lack of constructive notice, a defendant must offer some evidence as to when the area in question was last cleaned or inspected relative to the time when the plaintiff fell. And here, no evidence was uh, submitted on that issue. So the takeaway, this issue recurs frequently if a defendant doesn't prove the area where the fall occurred was inspected and found or made safe close in time to the fall, the defendant has not demonstrated the lack of constructive notice of the condition and it is not entitled to summary judgment. Next is 
Next is Evans on pages 26 and 27. This case illustrates the difficulty of demonstrating that the cause of a slip and fall was open and obvious at the summary judgment stage. Whether a condition was open and obvious is fact-specific. Here, plaintiff fell over a white flower pot on a landing. Supreme Court granted summary judgment to the defendant, and the Second Department reversed. As the Second Department explained, quote, The plaintiff tripped and fell over a white flower pot located next to a white column on the landing. She was standing on the landing outside the defendant's front door speaking with the defendant who was standing in the doorway. When the defendant moved the outer screen door toward her, she stepped back into the object, lost her balance, and fell from the landing. Whether a hazard is open and obvious cannot be divorced from the surrounding circumstances. A condition that is ordinarily apparent to a person making reasonable use of his or her senses may be rendered a trap for the unwary where the condition is obscured or the plaintiff is distracted. Therefore, whether a dangerous or defective condition exists on the property so as to give rise to liability depends on the particular circumstances of each case and is generally a question of fact for the jury. Here, the defendant failed to establish the alleged condition was open and obvious and not inherently dangerous under the circumstances surrounding the accident. Next is Darjinsky on page 27. This is another slip and fall case. It illustrates the relatively rare failure to warn theory of liability. The bathroom floor had just been mopped and remained wet. Supreme Court granted the defendant grocery store's motion for summary judgment and the second department reversed. The court said, quote, The evidence submitted by the defendants in support of the motion raised triable issues of fact as to whether defendant provided any warning about a potentially hazardous condition in the bathroom and whether any warning that was provided adequately gave notice that there was a hazardous condition inside the bathroom. So the takeaway here, failure to warn of a dangerous condition can be a viable theory in a slip and fall case. Next is Bustan, B-U-E-S-T-A-N, page 28 of this June 2023 personal injury reversal report. This is another slip and fall where the floor had just been mopped. Again, Supreme Court's grant of summary judgment to the defendant was reversed by the Second Department. Here, the theory of liability was the defendant's creation of the dangerous condition. The court held the defendant did not demonstrate the condition of the floor was readily observable. As the court explained it, quote, Defendant relied upon the deposition testimony of the plaintiff and of the defendant's maintenance employee who was in charge of mopping the lobby. Their testimony demonstrated that the lobby area where the plaintiff fell had been mopped with a soap-like substance sometime during the hour preceding the plaintiff's fall and that after she fell, the plaintiff noticed that the floor was wet and smelled like a cleaning fluid. 
Given this evidence, the defendant failed to eliminate all triable issues of fact as to whether it created the condition that caused the plaintiff to fall. Contrary to the defendant's contention, its submissions failed to establish that the wet or oily condition of the floor was readily observable by a reasonable use of plaintiff's senses prior to her fall. That ends the quote. So that's another aspect of this open and obvious um, theory, which is difficult to prove at the summary judgment stage. So the takeaway here, in a slip and fall, a question of fact whether the defendant created the dangerous condition will preclude the award of summary judgment to the defendant. Next is Jean Charles, page 29 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. Here the plaintiff fell where two steps led to a landing. The plaintiff alleged the absence of a handrail was a proximate cause of her fall. Supreme Court granted defendant's motion for summary judgment, and once again the Second Department reversed. The court explained, quote, The defendant failed to establish her prima facie entitlement to judgment as a matter of law dismissing the complaint. The defendant's submissions in support of her motion included a transcript of the plaintiff's deposition testimony, which revealed the existence of a triable issue of fact. In particular, the plaintiff testified that she was looking for something to grab onto as she fell but found nothing. Even if the plaintiff's fall was precipitated by a misstep, her testimony that she looked for something to grab onto to stop her fall presented an issue of fact as to whether the absence of a handrail was a proximate cause of her injury. Since the defendant failed to establish her prima facie entitlement to judgment as a matter of law, we need not consider the sufficiency of the opposing papers." End quote. So the takeaway here, remember there can be more than one proximate cause of a slip and fall. Here the fall may have been precipitated by plaintiff's misstep, but the allegation there was no handrail, handrail to grab onto raised the question of fact whether the absence of a handrail was also a proximate cause of the fall. Next is Fado, page 30. This is an important case. The issue is whether surgery can constitute spoliation of evidence. The answer is no, even where there has been a demand for a pre-surgical physical exam. In this traffic accident case, plaintiff underwent surgery before the action was commenced and again after a defense demand for a pre-surgery medical exam. The court explained, quote, The first department has recently rejected the proposition that a spoliation analysis can apply in such a situation. In Gilliam versus Uni Holdings, the First Department held that the condition of one's body is not the type of evidence that is subject to a spoliation analysis. After noting that spoliation, uh, spoliation analysis has long been applied to a party's destruction of inanimate evidence, the First Department concluded that the state of one's body is fundamentally different 
from inanimate evidence, and medical treatment, including surgery, is entirely distinct from the destruction of documents or tangible evidence which spoliation sanctions attempt to ameliorate. To find that a person has an obligation to preserve his or her body in an injured state so that a defendant may conduct a medical examination is antithetical to our belief in personal liberty and control over our own bodies. We agree with the First Department's conclusion. It is not reasonable to require a plaintiff to delay medical treatment and potentially prolong his or her suffering solely to allow a defendant to examine the plaintiff's body in a pre-surgical state. Under these circumstances, the plaintiff has not refused to obey an order for disclosure or willfully failed to disclose information which ought to have been disclosed. And that's a quote from CPLR 3126, end quote. So the takeaway, a plaintiff is not obligated to delay or forego surgery to allow a defendant to conduct a pre-surgical or physical exam, even where there has been a demand for the exam. Next is Lillian C., pages 31 and 32 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is an intersection traffic accident case against the state, which alleged the intersection was unsafe. Reversing the Court of Claims, the Fourth Department held plaintiff had raised a question of fact whether, although this intersection was safe when constructed in 1974, increased traffic had rendered the intersection unsafe and whether the state was aware of that danger. As the court explained it, quote, Under the ordinary rules of negligence, the state has a non-delegable duty to keep its roads reasonably safe, and the state breaches that duty when it is made aware of a dangerous highway condition and does not take action to remedy it. The duty includes the continuing duty to review a planned intersection in light of its actual operation. Although the state established that its design of the intersection in 1974 was reasonably safe, claimant raised an issue of fact whether the intersection was reasonably safe at the time of the accident in light of the significant increase in traffic at that intersection over the years for drivers turning left onto the I-690 west ramp. Claimant submitted the affidavit of her expert who averred that the significant increase in traffic volume warranted the installation of a left-turn-only lane for eastbound drivers turning left. Indeed, the expert averred that there was insufficient sight distance for eastbound left-turning vehicles because of the continuous line of oncoming traffic. End quote. So the takeaway here, in a highway design case, although a highway can be safe when constructed, increased traffic over time can render intersections dangerous. And the state has a continuing duty to monitor the actual operation of an intersection. At this point, I'm going to insert a verification code for this June 
2023 Personal Injury Update CLE. The verification code should be placed on your attorney affirmation. The verification code is intersection. Again, the verification code to be placed on your attorney affirmation for this personal injury update CLE for June 2023 is intersection. Next is Ventura on pages 32 and 33. This traffic accident case reminds us that the lessor of a car which is involved in an accident can raise the Graves Amendment as an affirmative defense. The defense limits the liability of the lessor to negligent maintenance or repair, and the defense is available to both individuals and businesses who are in the business of leasing cars. This is an exception to the rule that the owner of a car is vicariously liable for the negligence of the driver. Next is Bichetti, pages 34 and 35 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report, another traffic accident case. Here, a wheel fell off plaintiff's car shortly after the car was serviced. Plaintiffs brought a motion for summary judgment citing the res ipsa loquitur theory of liability. The Supreme Court denied the motion, but again, Second Department reversed. The court explained the application of the res ipsa loquitur theory as, po as follows, quote, for the doctrine of res ipsa loquitur to apply, a plaintiff must establish three conditions. First, the event must be of a kind that ordinarily does not occur in the absence of someone's negligence. Second, it must be caused by an agency or instrumentality within the exclusive control of the defendant. And third, it must not have been due to any voluntary action or contribution on the part of the plaintiff. Exclusive control is not a rigid rule and has been applied in circumstances when the accident occurred after the instrumentality left the defendant's control, where it was shown that the defendant had exclusive control at the time of the alleged act of negligence. The plaintiff does not need to eliminate all other causes, but must show that their likelihood is reduced so that the defendant's conduct is more probably the cause. The plaintiff must show that the defendant's control was sufficiently exclusive to fairly rule out some other agency causing the purported defect. Once the plaintiff satisfies the burden of proof on these three elements, the doctrine of res ipsa loquitur permits the fact finder to infer negligence, end quote. So the takeaway here, if an incident could not reasonably have occurred without the defendant's negligence, the res ipsa loquitur doctrine allows the inference of negligence. Here the inference of negligence was strong enough to warrant summary judgment in favor of the plaintiff, even though the actual accident occurred when the vehicle was no longer in the exclusive possession of the defendant. Next is Key Hong Park on page 36. This is a traffic accident case that illustrates 
that although plaintiff's comparative negligence is no longer a bar to a plaintiff's entitlement to summary judgment, a defendant's viable comparative negligence affirmative defense should survive summary judgment. Here, the defendant raised a question of fact whether plaintiff could have avoided the collision. As the court put it, quote, The plaintiff established entitlement to judgment as a matter of law by demonstrating that defendant entered the intersection without yielding the right-of-way to plaintiff's vehicle. Defendant averred that he stopped at the stop sign and proceeded at 10 miles per hour through the intersection. Defendant further averred that after the front of his vehicle had passed through the intersection, the plaintiff's vehicle struck the right rear quarter panel of his vehicle with such tremendous force that it caused his vehicle to spin around and roll over on its roof and then back onto its wheels. Under these circumstances, the defendants raised triable issues of fact, including whether the plaintiff exercised reasonable care in approaching the intersection and whether the plaintiff could have avoided the collision. End quote. So the takeaway here, even where a plaintiff in a traffic accident case is entitled to summary judgment, a defendant's comparative negligence affirmative defense, which is sufficient to raise a question of fact, should not be dismissed. Next is Gernot, G-E-R-N-A-T-T, pages 37 and 38 of the June 2023 Personal Injury Reversal Report. This is a traffic accident case involving a police car. The Fourth Department majority reversing Supreme Court over a two-justice dissent held there was a question of fact whether the officer acted with reckless disregard for the safety of others. That's the standard for liability for emergency vehicles. Defendant police officer was responding to a call concerning a burglar alarm and was driving without emergency lights at 70 miles per hour on a sparsely populated rural two-lane road with a 55 miles per hour speed limit when plaintiff attempted a left turn and the collision occurred. The court explained, quote, Plaintiff testified that defendant's vehicle was coming toward his vehicle at a high rate of speed and did not have on any headlights, siren, or flashing lights. While there was evidence that defendant attempted to brake before colliding with plaintiff's vehicle, there was undisputed evidence that defendant's vehicle was traveling 70 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone just prior to the collision, and that defendant was still traveling 47 miles per hour at the time of impact with plaintiff's vehicle. Defendant submitted his own deposition testimony, which established that at the time of the accident, defendant was responding to a police dispatch call of a possible burglar alarm. Defendant further testified that he was not sure whether he was responding to an emergency situation and only knew at the time that he was responding to an alarm at an address. End quote. So the takeaway here, the evidence that defendant police officer was not sure he was responding to an emergency call and was going 70 miles per hour on a rural road without emergency lights raised a question of fact 
whether the officer acted in reckless disregard for the safety of others. And that concludes this uh, personal injury update CLE for June 2023.